Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in our series, Creation in the Book of Job, we spent three programs on the creature Job named in chapter 3, verse 8, which is Leviathan. Yes, Scott, Leviathan. But that's not because there was that much material to be gleaned from Job 3, 8. (laughs) It was because Leviathan is the subject of an entire 34-verse chapter near the end of Job, chapter 41. So we covered those verses describing Leviathan as well. And you also discussed the abilities of a beetle, which, (laughs) although it might seem was off the subject, the Bombardier beetle is an example of a creature possessing the ability to, for all intents and purposes, make fire, or to be precise, to make a chemical explosion. And the point of that discussion being, if God made a beetle with such unlikely abilities, Why is it so hard for people to accept the proposal that God made a fire-breathing dragon? Okay, so moving on from Leviathan, as we consider more from the book of Job that deals with creation, what are we going to look at today? Well, we're going to think about a statement that one of Job's friends, sort of loosely put, (laughs) made. His name is Eliphaz. And in Job chapter 4, verse 17, he asks, I think, what we should understand to be a rhetorical question. It is this, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, note, he is well aware that God made man. He describes God as his maker. So we're going to get into what the meaning of his question actually is. But first of all, let's point out how this is relevant to the theme of creation in the book of Job. There are many, many places throughout the book of Job where the creation of man by God, and especially there's an emphasis on the creation of the spirit of man, is highlighted throughout the book of Job. So this idea of Eliphaz referring to God as man's maker is very, very prevalent in the book. And, you know, I sort of wonder, especially with this little specific phrase, his maker, if that phrase maybe is the source of a very common phrase that we use. And we talk about man and his maker, Mm -hmm. uh, man meeting his maker, man getting right with his maker. I wonder if that actually comes from the book of Job. Well, Dr. Scripture, I'd like to point out that this distinguishes the biblical view from a lot of these other ancient religions, because in a lot of those, you know, man was an accident, man wasn't created by the gods, or maybe was created by a specific god, in some cases by accident. In the biblical view, God is the maker of everything. Yeah, and especially it's important to realize that God made us, that God made me. And of course, that I would suggest is one of the motivations behind the theory of evolution, because a person is able to uh, somehow convince themselves that God did not make them, and so they're not accountable to God, and thus will have to answer to him someday. The point being that we are accountable. It's an acknowledgment by Eliphaz and, of course, by Job, that being made by God means that we are accountable to him. So here Eliphaz is saying, can a man be pure before his maker, or can mankind be just before God? Now, one thing I should point out is that there is a difference in translations for this verse. The New American Standard, which is what I generally use, says, can man be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? But the King James Version translates it this way, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? In other words, making this comparison Mm -hmm. between God and man and who is more pure. 
Well, that's somewhat of a significant difference, but I've looked at several different Hebrew scholars, and most of them that I've read do not think that the comparative idea is really what the translation should be here, that it really is simply making a statement that can man be just before God or pure before his maker. And that really, regardless of the specific way it should be translated, I think that that's the idea that is being presented here by Eliphaz. The sense is, can man be just or righteous or pure before God? And the idea is that, no, man is a sinner. Man is not just or righteous before God. He's not pure before God. God sees all and knows that he's not righteous and not pure. Well, Dr. Scripture, that certainly is a doctrine we're familiar with in the New Testament. Right. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Exactly. And now this is what Eliphaz is basically saying to Job. But of course, he's not telling Job anything that he doesn't know (laughs) full well already. In fact, he probably knows it better than Eliphaz. Listen to what Job says in response to Eliphaz. Now, there's quite an exchange here. Eliphaz talks and talks and talks, and then Job goes on and on in response for a couple of chapters. So here, what we read in Job 4.17, that was Eliphaz's comment. Job says later on in chapter 7, verse 20, At this point now, Job is actually talking to God, and he says, Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? Now listen here. Why then dost thou not pardon my transgression, and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and thou wilt seek me, but I will not be." I think we should understand again that Job is essentially asking a rhetorical question in verse 20 of chapter 7 when he says, Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? He knows he's a sinner, but he's asking the question, What have I done to deserve this, you know, this Mm. terrible oppression that he's experienced? And then in verse 21, he says, Why then dost thou not pardon my transgression? He knows that there's nothing else that can be done if God isn't going to pardon him, if God isn't going to take away his iniquity. He's doomed. And so he's sort of asking God, why aren't you doing this for me? What else can I do? He realizes that only God can pardon. Job, in fact, has a whole discourse on this truth in chapter 9. And I think it's important to read what he says so that we really drive home this idea that Job understood that only God could pardon Which, of course, is driven home, as you pointed out, Scott, in the New Testament. But what we need to understand is this isn't only a New Testament concept. Job, as I've mentioned before, is in a sense very much a New Testament believer, (laughs) we might say. So let's turn to Job chapter 9. And I'm going to read a rather large section so we really can see where Job is coming from. Job chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered, In truth I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right? Before God. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waters of the sea, who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. 
Let me stop there now. We've read the first 10 verses of chapter 9. Notice how Job fully understands the power of God in creation. And he also then recognizes that no one can contend with him, certainly not when it comes to creation, but also when it comes to his righteousness. No one can stand before God. Dr. Scripture, it's significant that there in chapter 9, verse 9, Job mentions the constellations of the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, because later in the book, when God is speaking to Job, challenging him as to whether or not he can match what the Creator has done, one of the challenges God presents to Job in chapter 38 is, could he bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion or guide the bear with her satellites? That's right. It seems like the Lord is pointing out that Job has apparently forgotten the things he had said earlier about the unmatchable power of the Creator that no one should or could question what the Creator does. That's an excellent observation, Scott. When the Lord is rebuking Job for some of the things he ends up saying, as the debate goes round and round between Job and his friends, the Lord actually uses some of Job's own words against him, so to speak. It's a vivid demonstration of the progression of Job's attitude through the book. It began with his amazing profession of submission and trust in the Lord when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But over the course of so much talk, Job reaches the point where he demands the Almighty reply to his questions. It's a powerful illustration of the fallibility of the human heart and mind. And I suggest that it is just that lesson, which is at least in part what the Lord wanted to teach Job through the suffering he was made to endure. Continuing on then in Job's discourse, look at verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. How profound. Job understood that the only way he has any discourse with God, any recourse with God, is he would simply have to ask for mercy. And so Job continues to lament his helplessness. In verse 29, he says, I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet thou wouldst plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us. Who may lay his hand upon us both? Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. So all this demonstrates that Job knew he was a sinner and could do nothing to cleanse himself. Verse 33 is profound. What a great statement as he realizes he needs an advocate. The New American Standard here called it an umpire, but the idea is an advocate. He needs someone besides himself to plea on his behalf to the Almighty. And you know, that plea for an umpire, an advocate, was answered in Christ Jesus. Remember what it said there in Romans 3.23, Scott, you quoted it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 24 goes on to say, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, this principle is taught in the New Testament. Later on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. So just as God created us, he also redeems us. The New Testament describes it as being created again. That is, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. So Eliphaz asks the question, can man be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The answer is yes, in Christ. Eliphaz may have thought that it was impossible. But I think Job understood somehow, he might not have known just how, but somehow he would be just before God someday. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul explains how it can be. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Paul says that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's not what I say, that's what Scripture says.